Well, good morning, everyone. Today we're going to finish our series, uh, Faith in the Darkness, where we've been looking at the uh, the minor prophet Habakkuk and the things that he had to say back and forth to God about the impending invasion of the Babylonian Empire uh, into Israel. And he's struggling with uh, God's responses to his complaints. His complaints are focused around the corruption in, in Israel itself, the corrupt leaders, the, uh, the corrupt systems, uh, their lack of care about the rules of the law. Of the law. Um, and so he makes his complaint, and we've been through these chapters and seen that God's answer to him is, uh, look, I'm sending uh, this external army, this foreign power, to invade. And uh, Habakkuk, uh, understandably, is bemused by this. What, what, what are you doing? What is happening here? And then God says uh, back and forth that this is how I'm going to do it. And, and, and somehow in the midst of all this difficulty, confusion, and, and God's ways being so different from Habakkuk's uh, hopes, that Habakkuk has to find faith in the darkness. That's what he has to do. How can he trust God when so much evil is happening around him? God seems to be allowing things that are beyond Habakkuk's understanding. Um, and so this is uh, Habakkuk's dilemma as he talks back and forth uh, with God. And here we find the last part of this story in Habakkuk chapter 3. And the last of his uh, uh, outpourings to God and his reflections on this process of hearing back and forth what God has to say. Um, so I'll read Habakkuk 3, uh, 9 to 19, and then we'll have a look, see what we think it says for us today. And, and that's the wonder of Scripture, is although this is written thousands of years ago, because God doesn't change, and basically people don't change very much either, what he says to us is hugely relevant for our faith, for our comfort, uh, for, our, for our faith in God. Uh, so many aspects of our lives today are reflected in what Habakkuk has to say. So let's read here from verse 9. Habakkuk chapter 3. You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the, fla at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth. In anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head, when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who are in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, you churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I wait patiently in the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and the cattle, no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Those are the final words of Habakkuk, the, the last recorded utterances, as it were, from this prophetic message uh, of this prophet in the Old Testament. So Habakkuk is going through a process throughout the book of, of being honest about how he feels and then having his thinking reset in the presence of God. Uh, his expectations are here and God is saying, well, actually, it's like this. And then Habakkuk is having to make peace with that as he goes along. So he's initially, Habakkuk is taking all his cues from his uh, observed uh, of the observations of what happen, happening around him, as we said. So he says, look, the, the nation's corrupt and the nation that you're bringing in is even more corrupt. Uh, how, how can this be so? If you're a holy God, how can these things uh, make any sense? And then what he does is he, he speaks to his own faith, which so often happens in the Bible. And this corrupt nation, these evil leaders, this confusing activity, the invading armies, all are very real. Habakkuk is appealing and God is helping him to appeal to his faith to draw him through the confusion. And so what Habakkuk does in this passage here is actually, I don't know if you picked it up as we read through there, you may be able to read it in the words um, if you've got your Bibles open. He, what he's doing, he's actually recalling the Exodus as uh, Moses, if you remember, led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and on towards the promised land that they would inherit. And all the miracles, the myriad of miracles that God did to extract them from the power of Pharaoh and that nation where they'd been enslaved for so very, very long. And in that story, what Habakkuk is doing is he's recalling that God did the impossible. He did the impossible in that he rescued a nation out from under the Egyptians. It was not possible. All the circumstances, all that they knew of Pharaoh and the Egyptian regime was that this cannot happen. You can't get free. It's never going to happen. And yet it did happen. <laughs> and in order to strengthen his own face, his own faith for the moment that Habakkuk and the nation are currently in and what they're facing in the future, he recalls what God had done in the past. And in that sense, he is worshipping. He is reminding himself of God's activity up to this point in order that his own faith would grow for the hope of activity into the future. And of course, we know that story of Exodus. It's, it's incredible, though, the miracles that Moses did uh, in order that Pharaoh would finally get to the point where he would let uh, God's people be released to go and, uh, and pursue uh, this promised land. Um, and so the first application really for us is obvious. It's that in the darkness of our own experience sometimes, it, circumstances can feel like that. It's like, I, I know for certain that this situation is impossible. This relationship, this financial challenge, this, uh, this illness, it is impossible. I know that for sure. That's Habakkuk's moment. And yet I still am going to worship. I'm going to remind myself that I don't serve 
the accumulated reality of circumstance, I serve the God of creation. I serve the God who empowers good and bad, as it were. He does all these things. I serve this God. And so we worship. And so what do we do? Well, we sing in the dark. Sometimes that's what we need to remind ourselves. Faith in the darkness. We sing in the dark. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. He is recalling God's goodness over time. He's recalling God's rescue plans, God's activity. It's as if he's saying, rejoice in the Lord, O my soul. Um, and the kind of thing David, uh, King David would often do, uh, he, he would look in and, and, and instruct himself, rejoice in the Lord, O my soul. Even in the teeth of real and pressing difficulty, God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. And so we come to those lines, which are, I suppose you may, um, yeah, you may already know. These, these are the, some of the famous lines, the many famous lines from Habakkuk. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crops fail, the fields produce no food. There's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. Yet, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he is my saviour. He is a saviour. And that's the story of our own salvation. It's the story of the Gospels that trapped, alone, helpless and hopeless, desperate for a saviour, one is provided from heaven. That's the story. And that story doesn't just count for salvation. It counts for all our lives. We have a saviour. We serve a saviour. And so when life uh, kind of bears its teeth, and it seems dark all around. We worship him. We worship him. Not in, not in a kind of, oh, well, I suppose we better do it. But in confident faith that he is able to carry us through. Well, we might say to all of that, well, nice. Nice language, Habakkuk. Uh, you know, uh, interesting story. But come on. Where does this kind of practically lead me? Just, does it actually help me? Is it just a pipe dream? Is there anything that's real in this other than a hope? A, a hope that maybe God will do something about the situation. Well, let's just track this kind of faith into others, another story in the Bible. Because we see this faith in many places, but we see it, I think, very powerfully in the story in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, I don't know if you remember, Daniel, this is years after this prophetic word has come through Habakkuk, but they are carried off into exile. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are carried into exile. And they, uh, are, are, they're intelligent guys, and so uh, the king of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, well, how can we use these guys? You know, what, what use can we put them to? And uh, anyway, let's read the story here in, in Daniel and chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach and Medigar replied to, uh, to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves uh, before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, God, the God who we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, as King Nebuchadnezzar had, had drawn these guys into uh, working for him, uh, they had shone, uh, God had blessed them, and they had stood out amongst all the local kind of leadership and the local 
um, protégés, as it were, of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. And they, they'd really shone. And those around them become really jealous of them. And so, as usually happens, this jealousy had turned into activity. And, and so those around said, how can we get these guys? And of course, it was going to be to do with worshipping uh, the living God. And so they said to Nebuchadnezzar, look, set up this great golden statue of yourself. And when the trumpets blast, everyone must bow down to it in the whole country. And so this is what they did. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to this golden image because they worshipped the king of kings. They couldn't bow down to another god because of the Ten Commandments. which says, I have no other gods before me. So they refused to do it. And the, uh, the, the plot was that anyone who didn't bow down to this golden image would be thrown into a fire and burned. And this is what has happened. And here they are now refusing to bow down. And they're now confronted with the king's command to bow down. They won't do it. And, and they say this, we, we, we won't do this. <laughs> Even if it means our death, we won't do it. God can save us, but even if he doesn't save us, even if he doesn't save us, we will not bow down to your God. Circumstances, once again, conspire against the people of God. They conspire against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Um, the powers around them have forced them into a corner. It's, they, they're cornered. There's no escape. They are now thrown onto the mercy of God. But listen, they are not just uh, helpless. What they're saying here is, listen, there are things that are worth more than whether the circumstances around play to my strengths. There are things more important to us, even than our own lives, and that we won't, we won't bow down. We won't break God's laws. We'll, we'll remain faithful, even if it means our lives, uh, because that's worth more to us than anything that could be done to us. Let's pick up the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army uh, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the of fire killed the soldiers who took Meshach and, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the fire and these three men tied firmly fell into the blazing furnace. It's, got, it's like, my goodness, circumstances have conspired. They are trapped. There is no escape. There is no escape. Everything has gone, it seems, finally and completely wrong for these three. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached and opened uh, 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 approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out, come here. These three men faced impossible oppression and corruption. Very similar to 
the circumstances that were pervading and going to pervade for Habakkuk. They were set up and there was no way they could escape. They could understandably look around them and conclude there's no evidence that God is with us. Where The, the circumstances are not telling us that God's with us. There's nothing here that's helping us, but they chose to follow God in the darkness. They followed his ways and honoured him as exiles in a foreign country. They had already done this. They'd learned to worship in the dark. So when the stakes are raised and now their lives are on the line, it's natural for them to say, even if he doesn't save us, even if our God doesn't save, save us, we still won't bow down to your God. And at the peak of their apparent abandonment by God, they didn't falter because they, they refused to allow the circumstances to outweigh their trust in the God in whom they believed. They knew that their lives were and always had been in God's hands and that there were some things worth dying for. For God's glory, they would give up their very lives. Listen, we'll trust We'll trust for blessings in our church here, City Church. We'll trust for them. We'll pray for blessings continually. But our faith, dear brothers and sisters, mustn't rest on them. God is not good because he does the things I ask him to do when I ask him to do them. God is good. Whether, he, whether anything good happens or not, don't allow your faith to be held hostage to circumstance. The result, well, what is the, well, the result in this story, of course, is one of the most astonishing stories in the whole Bible. They're thrown into the furnace, which has been heated so hot the soldiers throwing them in are killed themselves. And the fire dies down. And what does the fire reveal? It's as if the fire relieves, reveals what had always been true of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And that was what? God was with them. It's as if the heat of the fire revealed the truth of God's presence, of God's promised salvation to them. And the truth is that many Christians will testify to this. Many Christians will say it was when everything else seemed to fail, when circumstances turned away, when the country was in a complete uproar, nothing made sense. I knew, I knew God was with me. It doesn't make sad things not sad. It doesn't make tragedy not tragedy, but it does mean there in the midst of the fire is God with you, and he was with them. And he says, Pharaoh says, it's like a, it's like a son of the gods is with you in the furnace, which makes us think, and many um, of the commentators would tell us that in the fire is actually God himself. There is Jesus pre-incarnate, in other words, before he was born, as a man, there is Jesus with them in the furnace. His presence was always with them, but the heat of circumstance revealed his closeness to them and actually vindicated their action to all who were watching. And the story changes dramatically. Nebuchadnezzar repents <laughs> the whole situation, the impossible situation that they knew could not change, could not change changed dramatically as it had in the exodus as it had for so many other of those who would believe in God so this kind of faith is not without precedent and it doesn't 
it doesn't just think, oh, well, what good will it do? Well, we see what it does. It reveals Christ's presence. It reveals God there with them. And of course, as we gaze, as it were, into the furnace and see this fourth son of the gods, as Nebuchadnezzar had called him, it turns our attention to Jesus himself. Can't help but do that. It's the intention, really, of the story. And then we think of his own moment of greatest abandonment. Jesus, of course, those circumstances conspired against him. We remember the cross, we remember the fake trial, we remember the betrayal of friends, we remember the, the disownment of his closest, we remember those who scattered, we remember the utter aloneness of the cross. We remember it, we can't help but recall it. His friends have betrayed and scattered, the false accusations have won the day. Where is God's help for Jesus? The unjust invaders crucify him naked between two criminals. Outside the city of David, their warrior king, David's greatest son, dies. For him, there's no miraculous intervention. No surprising plot twist. He just dies. Yet in that moment, that moment that we all dread, <laughs> Jesus is alone and abandoned, which is the outcome that we would deserve. Yet because in that moment Jesus, Jesus hears no voice from heaven, in that moment is our assurance that we will hear the voice from heaven. That Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, even if it's before the cross, they, they're not alone. God's presence is powerfully with them as God walks with them in the fire. He, you see, took our place. He was abandoned alone in the dark so that we never would be. His captivity opened the door to our freedom. Jesus, the truth and life, set us free. So in this incredible way where he spans through time and eternity, he reassures Habakkuk and he rescues Daniel's friends from the furnace and he, he enables us to rejoice when the circumstances conspire against us because here is our assurance. He has walked through this so that we will not have to because he walked through it alone so that we can know his presence as we walk through it. And his promise is, I will never leave you. You will never be abandoned. I've taken the place of abandonment. I've become the abandoned one so you can be the adopted ones. It's an incredible story of salvation. And so when we hear Habakkuk say these words, that the fig tree doesn't bud, there's no grapes on the vine, the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there's no sheep in the pen, the cattle in the stalls, and we could add our own to that list, couldn't we? And each of us would have a different story to tell and some of us may have terrible things to add in there, terrible tragedy and difficulty to add. And yet here, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my what? My saviour, my saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on 
the heights. And so, brothers and sisters, we sing in the dark, as many who have gone before us uh, have found to be absolutely true. We sing in the dark because we know his promises are good and true. And so we help each other to sing in the dark. We can sing in the dark because darkness no longer holds fear. We sing in the dark because we are never alone in the darkness. It's not often the darkness that is the frightening thing. It's what might be in the darkness. And as the fire burns for those three dear ones, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, what does it reveal? You are never alone. You are never alone. God is with you. What do we find about this kind of faith? We find that this kind of faith is invincible. What can be done? What can they do? There's there's no attack that can thwart this kind of faith because even when there's no circumstantial evidence that God really is with you, we know he's with us. We are assured of it. Absolutely certain. And that certainty comes as we gaze on Jesus as we wonder around the communion table at this one who gives himself heart and soul, blood and flesh. He gives himself to us so that when our blood and flesh are under attack, we know we're not alone. We know it. We're assured of it. The Holy Spirit witnesses to that, the embrace of God in the midst of darkness. Let's just finish with these words from Romans 8. Very familiar. We've read them many times. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can, what can they do? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is it who condemns? No one. Christ, who has died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, conspiring circumstances? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, says Paul, no. Won't give in to the circumstantial evidence around me. No, I won't. In all these things, says Paul, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing. There are some who will tell you there are bits missing from this list. There's nothing missing from this list. Nothing in all creation. Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we want to thank you so much that this kind of belief, this kind of faith, this sustaining, singing in the dark, uh, Lord Jesus, is a recognition that you are with us in the dark. And Father, I want to pray for my dear brothers and sisters. Lord, we know there are many who are full of joy and circumstances are great right now. But Lord, for those who are struggling, for those, Lord Jesus, for whom these words are just singing truth, I pray you'd strengthen them by your Holy Spirit. I pray they will be able to say along with Habakkuk, although the, the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vine and the crop seems to have failed and the fields produce no fruit and there's no sheep and there's no cattle, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I pray right now 
by your Holy Spirit, you would strengthen each and every one, Lord God. Amen.